Well, I uh, I went camping this weekend, so I wanted to ask you too. Uh, well, first, assuming you go camping, if you don't, you can just skip. But like, what uh, what what's your sort of camping routine? What do, what do you do up there? What do the campers do? Because down here, let me let me ask a question and then make a statement. Down here in Texas, you uh, you try not to melt, so that is number one. You go out there and you don't want to uh, you don't want to die, so you find a, a swimming hole or whatever, or you just suffer. But those are your options. And then you might go on a little bit of a hike, look around at things. You can fish, stuff like that. But what goes on up there in the uh, Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I think Jared's a, uh, a camper, so he can answer. I'm not a huge camper. My brother, who's nothing like me, uh, lives in Arizona and camps like every weekend. But that is not my bag. Jared, I think you camp, don't you? I do camp. And it's remarkably similar to what happens in Texas. Usually when we go camping, it's a uh, further inland. So kind of in the Mount Rainier area where we happen to live by, you want lots of shade, you want a swimming hole. The swimming holes tend to be really chilly. There's one place that we always go to that has uh, just fresh, freshly melted glacial water. So it's a very brisk swim and you cool (laughs) off very quickly when you go through that. But yeah, shade, swimming hole, same, same deal. That's camping. Well, my, my, my revelation uh, about this camping trip uh, other than we were talking before we were recording about me eating fried chicken and what an adventure that was. <laughs> I, I used to eat that as a kid all the time. And, and I have to say, man, it's probably been, I don't want to say 15, but maybe 10 years since I've had fried chicken. It just doesn't come up in my, my current life. Uh, but uh, we, were, we were there in the, uh, the hole, right? Spring fed, not glacier fed. And, uh, you know, just swimming around, having fun. And for, first there were some... Um, what I could only describe as post-teens, I wouldn't call them 20-year-olds, but they were some sort of teens, and, and they were, I don't know what was in these cups, but they were running around with like a, all four of them had like those big 32-ounce uh, fits-in-your-cup holder styrofoam cup from some gas station. They looked like they were having fun. That's that's the way to kind of slum camp. But then there was this whole <laughs> big family that came to the, the it, ta- it takes about 20 minutes to walk to the, the, the hole in the ground that you swim in. And uh, they had, like, camping chairs and a rolling cooler and all this stuff, and they are hanging out. And I was like, you see, when you plan for this kind of thing, what you got to do is assume that when you get there, you're going to have fun and ask yourself, what would I want when I'm having fun? And I think, I think you know, if you're obsessed about not melting, you're just thinking about uh, risk avoidance, and you're not focusing on when you actually show up there that you're going to want a cooler full of uh, delicious beverages and chairs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start on that outlook on life. And see what That's happens. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm uh, flying with my family today for, to start vacation right after this podcast. And mm. the thought of initially flying with five people, including three kids, made me want to, you know, leave in the middle of the night and not come home. But I think to your your point, some of it, I'm also now woke up this morning thinking, I'm going to have fun with this, even if it's crazy. It's a good way <laughs> to think versus uh, planning for the negative. That's right. That's right. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to be like, my plan is I'm going to get on the plane without a parachute, open up the door and leave this vacation. <laughs> <laughs> i'll try to avoid it yeah 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 you know i always find i always find since i you know just just like just like uh yourself i'm sure i travel a lot for work and it's a whole new experience in a good way traveling with family it's just sort of like it's because you know like you have the whole travel airport thing figured out and then you can just be like now we're just chilling right i can't expense this absurdly priced airport meal but like at the very least, I can uh, have fun, and I can I can do what all those other people with their funny rolling backpacks, all the families are doing. See what that life is like. 
That's good stuff. That's right. You wear you wear those team Cote t-shirts, your whole family, and you talk about your group your group as your family as a team. Man, I'm gonna let me guys. let me open up OmniFocus and write that one down. It's just a contextual reminder. Print up some t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I always great. see like one of those families on every vacation through the airport, and I, I don't think I want to be them, but yeah. I, I really admire them. Yeah, it's like the 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 the, the McCone Spivak family reunion, <laughs> and in like a uh, a bright pink shirt. That has has some saying like you know, like uh, you know, make sure Uncle Jerry changes his pants every day. Just oh, Uncle Jerry. Anyways, uh, that's uh, I never went to family reunions much, but you know, I think uh, reinvent is this week, isn't it? Uh, not reinvent. They are doing one of their, uh, I think, Amazon kind of events, mm. like roadshow sort of events, and they are announcing some new products today. So yeah, the, uh, the fall pickup is getting going on new when, products. When, when is reInvent then? And I'll forget it next uh, time. I believe it's, I believe it's November. Mm, November. That's that's not this month at all. That's close. Yeah. So they, they do little regional shows now. That's right. I remember there was one in London a little while back, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that was interesting. Yeah. And uh, well, first of all, why don't you introduce yourself, guest, just briefly. I am Jared Ruckel. I'm on the product team here at Pivotal, working a lot with Pivotal Cloud Foundry. That's right. Finds lots of holes to swim in, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, uh, last week, there was the announcement that uh, AWS, I, I guess, I don't know if finally is the right word, but they finally answered the question, are you going to care about Kubernetes officially? And uh, mm-hmm. and they joined the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which, as I recall, I don't think they put a hyphen in Cloud Native, but we'll have to go check on that. But uh, I, I thought, you know, I, I read through it a little bit. We talked a little bit about it on my uh, my other podcast, Software Defined Talk, uh, last week. But there wasn't a definitive statement about them being like all in on Kubernetes stuff. But it was about as definitive. It was definitive minus one. They had all uh, they had Adrian over there in in his Medium blog, being like, "We uh, we do all the open source stuff. Tons of people run Kubernetes. We're gonna work on all these projects." So that's exciting to see them join that. Uh, the old Kubernetes boat. Yeah, I mean, foundations are foundations. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's value in doing them. I think it's sometimes it's a rite of passage. In this case, I think it shows that Amazon's going to spend some time thinking about that. But at the same time, I'm sure they still keep a skeptical eye, knowing that this does make workloads easier to go to Google. But at the same time, there's probably no cloud company, of course, minus Pivotal, that is uh, more attuned to what their customers are asking for than Amazon. So they're doing it because their customers are asking for it, not just because they feel like it. Yeah, you know, it's also good, like reading all the uh, reading all the press around uh, them joining the CNCF. You get a good whirlwind tour of all the projects they have there. There's mm-hmm. a, there's actually a tremendous amount of uh, a big stack that they have. So also, I, uh, I I I was thinking, you know, I have a little. We did several episodes on my cloud native enterprise architect Odyssey, and I, I'm just going to give a little update. I forced myself to have a deadline. I have a little five minute talk I'm giving here in Austin tomorrow, which which I think will be a good. Basically, I can introduce myself, and then I'll have 30 seconds to say that I'm working on this. And then later on this week, at, of all places, an OpenStack meetup, I'm giving a longer talk, so I'll be able to uh, dump everything that I have there. And eventually, <laughs> I'll probably write something up. But, you know, I referred to a document I had earlier. I think I'm going to go delete all of that, and then I'll start over again with the actual useful content that, that I've come up with. But it's, there's been a lot of people who've uh, talked with me about it, uh, and it's been nice and uh, helpful. So uh, as always, if you still want to talk about what enterprise architects do in a cloud native world, uh, that would be fun. But I, I think I think I'll have some actual uh, helpful things to uh, to publish. Awesome. 
So then uh, I have to admit, I haven't read this uh, this low-code article you have. What's going on there? You know, why do I share links with you if, if we're not going to read them? I, I just, yeah. our whole relationship. Uh, I, I, li- so, I like to have a little previewing. It's kind of like a sommelier <laughs> of links. Yeah. You can, you can describe yes, the woody just, taste. It was a couple of uh, articles last week around the same survey, and it was just talking about low code. And the, kind of the one take was like, hey, it's it's doing some good stuff. The other take from the new stack was like, hey, from a safe survey, it shows like a lot of people have checked out low code platforms and then moved on. So is it kind of just peaked stagnant what have you and you know there was some some twitter engagement after i shared that and it was good stuff and i just think it's an interesting conversation because pivotal's partners with with mendix and pega and some other platforms that the whole point of them is how do i have developers writing less code and and building these apps quicker because many a times these are just very data-driven apps you know think force.com think these interfaces where i have a kind of a data schema and then i build out some interfaces to collect that data or process that data so they're not as crazy as a custom streaming app i'm going to build in spring boot but they also solve a lot of problems so you know they've been around for a while I personally haven't seen them kind of get over that hump of being totally mainstream and, you know, regular professional developers breaking them out, but they seem to have also found a successful niche. So I didn't, I didn't know Cote in your world, if you come across this sort of space much and Mm, if they've just kind of occupied the spot they're in and that's where they're going to stay versus kind of taking off or exploding. So now, now low code is, that's like the notion as you were just, that's the, the, the phrase for it, right? Like you're doing a, uh, low code style approach right yeah yeah i mean i mean i always think of these as uh i mean especially in y'all's neck of the wood you used to have uh rad development which is it's it's so sad we don't use that acronym anymore but you're i know it's rap, a shame you're rapid application development and uh you know at, at one point when my wife was working for the aclu of texas they had uh i used uh filemaker which which is fun and I don't know if yeah. that counts as low code or rad, but it sure felt so. like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the first thing I learned on back in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was a good lesson in something they should teach in computer science one hundred and one, which is never volunteer to write code for anyone. Like that's that's <laughs> going to go poorly for you. But you know, they they had this thing where you could uh, there's complaints in prisons, and you could submit. There was a, a form, and they would get uh, there was this web application to get dumped to a MySQL database. And then you get the CSV file and load it up into FileMaker, and then all the lawyers there can process it. And it was, uh, I think if I actually knew how to, ironically, very ironically, right? Like if I knew how to use FileMaker, it would have been really easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the the main sticking point being, and, and, you know, I'll get to more of the modern day, but the main sticking point being that like FileMaker has this, I mean, it's a database, but I was like a highfalutin Java developer at the time. And like, it's not an SQL database. So I like, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. It was one of those, like, it's the same way that if you spend too much time in Excel and you used to be a program, you're like, how does Excel think? Like, how does it arrange data? And mm-hmm. and like, I could never figure out in FileMaker how to really do that. But anyways, yeah, it was really useful. Like, I think, and to your point, like Mendix is a good example of this. And I think like the probably most of the first generation of of platform as a service, like you're saying, like Salesforce and like um, Intuit with QuickBase and other things had this. It was basically like a low code-ish, maybe medium code uh, Mm -hmm. way of extending out the platform. And it does, I mean, this kind of, and and I think Gartner sometimes is, it's related to citizen developers and stuff like that. And it is, 
It is a curious phenomena that aside from Excel and maybe whatever people do in Tableau and Quick nowadays and kind of BI stuff, like it's interesting that it hasn't spread more. I, I don't know. Like may, it feels right. like it feels like conceptually and not by volume, but maybe the apex was like HyperCard and and uh, and Fox Pro and all that stuff. The 90s was the apex of it. And I don't know. I don't know if it's sort of like scaling and manageability problems or whatever, but it's, it is weird that it hasn't caught on more. Yeah. And I don't know if there's some of the, you know, I didn't build it and there's just too much scaffolding and too much opinion. And so, I mean, some of these platforms have extended to allow for you to, you know, write some custom code in there as well. But yeah, I don't know if it's just sort of the, uh, you know, that's not good enough for me. I like just jumping down and building compilers or, yeah. you know, more importantly, I just like building my custom apps and I don't like your constraints. So yeah, I mean, they're really, some of them are very compelling platforms are very useful. And I don't know, I don't love debugging code and doing really boiling, bo- boring boilerplate stuff, but yeah, I just, I've just never seen it go beyond the, uh, you know, business analyst set or citizen developer set into mainstream. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there are like, I often think that a lot of, uh, not to affect, our monthly compensation with an idea like this or anything. But I have to think a lot of the uh, custom application development tasks that companies have could be taken care of with a pretty good Google form. <laughs> right. But on right. the other hand, there is, you know what, what those, those talk about that's sort of like, you know, bottom of the barrel code. Uh, but what that tends to lack is kind of like workflow stuff. Like you often need like, so much of what you do in uh, organizations with something like this is I want to collect some data, as they say, enrich it. I want to monkey around with it. And then I need some manager to approve it. And then it goes to someone else and they do something. And, right. you know, they, you could. I, I mean, I think I remember when I was talking with the Mindex people, they get involved in things like that. But like there's you can do a lot with just that simple little loop. And, uh, no, and that's a sweet spot yeah. for a lot of those systems is that sort of workflow stuff that's hard to necessarily chain together in just your random .NET app. Like you can do it, but there's a lot of stuff you have to do. So there's a lot of value in the workflow stuff or the hyper data driven stuff. And absolutely right. There's some cases where it's unnecessary to go build your custom app. Like you really could use platforms like this. That's why Access had such a long life because anybody could quick sling together something that would capture data and run some quick reports on it, you mm. know, solving problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the closing it out. It was interesting when I did that FileMaker thing to find out they were owned by Apple. It's very, very, uh, I guess it makes sense. But but in in that, I bet FileMaker is relatively small and drives a lot of uh, Apple customers. But it's a strange little thing to uh, to learn about. So now back to the high code and, and the highest of the high code. There were also, I think, you know, you pulled together two of them. But I remember looking this up for another one of my podcasts where we go on about white papers ironically for the topic of this show. Uh, but I think there were like four hype cycles that came out last week that were related to like application development, right? Or at least three or something. But there was the uh, the application infrastructure and integration, the, mm-hmm. the good good name there. And then you got the your normal application development one. I think there was a PaaS one too, right? Or did they shift it in one of these PAS, two? PaaS was mixed into some of these. There might have been another one. There was just a flurry of them. And these two stood out to me as yeah. always pretty useful. Yeah, no, these are good. It's always good to get fresh analyst meat for for the uh, for the presentations for your your King Ranch casseroles or your just uh, pot roast, whatever you're working on. But uh, yeah, like like uh, hype cycles are fun because they're really 
you can read them really quickly or you can read them really slowly. They're usually like, what, 40, 50 pages, if I remember? Because I got to go over yeah, well, all this, this stuff. Yeah, One of them 67, the other one's 59. So, oh, I mean, yeah. they're big, but like you said, there's there's the quick kind of at a glance, okay, what is at the, you know, the uh, peak of inflated expectations, which mm-hmm. is like what the title of my autobiography. Yep. And then you have the <laughs> trough of disillusionment sure. for, you know, like, oh gosh, this thing was so overhyped, I don't even want to use it. And then you hit that, graceful slope of enlightenment where eventually you get value and so it's good to read through those and then i actually like in those hype cycles they have a comparison table that says here's the sort of thing i'm looking for and here's the years to the mainstream adoption so it's not even just that this thing's crazy hyped it's hey you're probably five to ten years away from bots in this example or event-driven programming models or crowd testing or things like that but hey less than two years away is things like citizen developers per our previous conversation or responsive design or functional programming so i like being able to also map it that way that's helpful if you're a cio thinking about where do i put my chips maybe right now for r d stuff for what things are coming now now in y'all's experience how uh, how accurate i mean accuracy is the wrong word i mean you kind of went over useful but like What's y'all's experience with sort of like using it in that way that you were just talking about, Richard, where you're trying to time things out? Like, do you have any any examples you remember where it worked out well or didn't work out well? Yeah, I mean, we go back to our, our nine-episode series on enterprise architecture. I think back, <laughs> back in, uh-huh. in those days, things like this would be handy when it would be, okay, what kind of projects do we want to put something in the budget next year to just do some, some POC stuff or call in some vendors to mess around with service-oriented architecture in that time? Or we were doing some mashup technology and you know i would go off and explore mashups for a month and write up a summary so this kind of helps you at least think about what are those trends that maybe i'm not seeing or even conversely if something has just hype peak expectations maybe do we talk ourselves off the ledge from doing like all in on this thing right now because maybe we're just overhyping it so yeah. you know had some experience in the architecture team using this to to grade out the future a little bit how about yourself jared you had any good uh, any good relationships with the hype cycle in the past uh, it's a good, it's a good question. I think that they're a really good snapshot point in time, you know, sense of guidance. I'm not sure if anybody's actually done the cartoon flip book kind of comparison to see if, you know, how they change and evolve over time and how historically accurate they are. But I think really what the market you know, wants and what it needs is kind of this temperature check about where all these different, different things are. And so it's a really useful tool for that current state. Um, I don't know if you're going to gain any super awesome competitive advantage as a as an IT firm by by uh, by using it as as gospel, but like Richard mentioned, it's probably a pretty good tool to help allocate you know, your spend where you want to hedge your bets and and mess around with things, look more closely at things too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so just looking at the application development one, I see I see that uh, so far my favorite phrase on it is post scrum methodologies. I saw that one. Yeah. <laughs> I, li- I like that. <laughs> that sounds like something a therapist might be advising you about. Uh, but you know, it look it looks like in general, PaaS frameworks they they're they're climbing out of the trough of disillusionment. So that's right. that's that's a good sign. But then I guess AD PaaS. I forget my my thirty categories of PaaS. But I think that might be application development paths. You're right. Yeah, You're so, right. I had so, to look that one up too. So that's just about to to strike bottom and bounce off towards the top there. So that's good. That's good. Things are going well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it is like, and and then and then I still don't really know what reactive programming is, despite making many people explain it to me. But it looks like, let's see if I can pull this joke off. The back pressure is driving it down the curve. Is that right? Did I get that one? <laughs> 
well played. Okay, yeah, thank you, good. thank you. And uh, yeah, but th- I, this this one's pretty good. It's it's also to add to it. I mean, y'all you'll both said this, but it is a good overview of all the uh, the hipster stuff out there. I think you know uh, I haven't seen a Forrester wave in a long time, unfortunately. But like the ThoughtWorks also puts out an annual like. I think it's a spiral of all things. They're going all, uh, how do you say that guy's name? Boheme? They're going all spiral on it. But, yeah. uh, but it, that, that, that one's also a good, uh, sort of lay of the land, if you will, uh, that they do. But what, when you look, when y'all look across these hype cycles, what, uh, what's, what's, what's getting your gizzard all jiggly? Well, I mean, it's nice to see, uh, try to get that visual out of my head. The, uh, microservices at the top of the, uh, peak inflated expectations mm. which is not a surprise i have no idea what project management bots are so these things are always humbling because i don't even know what some of these things are so that's yeah. always good i, I think they, um, they probably like you're in slack and they're like hello have you filled out your tps report what yeah, is your status a... <laughs> i don't know if that's worthy of being on the hype cycle but that's fine but then also function paths right uh, function as a service serverless yes. also at the peak so that's the that's the Gart- gartner phrase for serverless then function paths right container management, those sort of things. So not surprising at all that those are at the peak. I think it's actually good to see that because it can remind you again that our our kind of echo chamber bubble of tech sometimes, we get hyped up about tech that's still multiple years away from mainstream. And then as you said, the things that maybe you see as a little boring, like in-memory data grids or traditional database platforms or application platform as a service are now in this sort of, hey, we know what we're doing with these now and are actually productive part of of the slope. Yeah, the, the other thing I recall reading, um, I need to go back and reread these more formally, is uh, that private paths is in there as as uh, kind of an official thing, which which that probably has happened sometime over the past year. But that's that's nice that that's in there. That hasn't been in Gartner land for a long time. Yeah, it's kind of curious looking at to see that iPaaS integration paths is about to uh, hit hit the bottom here because it seems like that's been around for a long time. So. It's all upside for Boomi from now on. <laughs> That's it. Well, there's just been so many vendors now. I think there's like 80 or 90 that Gartner's tracking. So I think yeah, there's just been true. that explosion of them, which is why you had that inflated expectations. Now you'll see some consolidation. Now you'll see some more tight use cases get defined. Yeah. How about yourself, Jared? What, what, what do you like here? You know, I what's uh, really fascinating about this, I wonder if there's some sort of master reconciliation of these cycles within within Gartner, because you've got microservices infrastructure at this really innovation area, but then microservices are kind of at the at the peak and just sort of how all these different things, you know, interrelate to each other. I'm sort of, you know, amazed at these things that sound kind of similar or at least adjacent categories can be so all over the place. And I guess that's a little bit of what you know, Gartner's role to play is in all of this as a you know, intermediary between, you know, buyers and vendors to help this, you know, sort of matchmaking dance make a little bit more sense. Yeah, no, I think that interrelation stuff's interesting because, as you say, many of these things are are not an island. Actually, arguably, none of them are. So, just because this thing is is peaking, does that mean something else is less relevant or that sort of thing? So, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see the interplay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very uh, detailed breakout of everything. Hmm. Well, speaking of detailed breakouts, so we're we're having you on, Jared, because because you uh, well. There, there's two parts of this. One is is you helped uh, you helped Shepard co-author. Like I think I think this was last week. We released four new white papers. Is that right? Four or is it three? It's four. So yeah. that's the definitive answer to what I did on my summer vacation. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then and then I was I was rereading the blog post, and you were like, "These are our first four. 
which which implies <laughs> there are other bundles out there, which which will be amazing. That'll be great. And and so, well, you know, I thought I thought it'd be good to uh, have you come on and just kind of go over what these four are and just highlight them a little bit. Obviously, we don't have time to uh, detail out everything, but it is. I mean, I, I think I think it's 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 exciting. I I was excited when I saw that because I remember when I was first uh, at Pivotal almost three years ago now. Uh, we were talking with some government agency and I got this, this odd request where someone at the end of the meeting was like, Oh, can you just send me all the, uh, all the white papers you have? And I was, I was said like, well, you know, on what topic? And they were like, no, no, just (laughs) send me all your white papers. And like, uh, it, it was kind of an interesting request, but I thought about it and like, you know, I like collecting white papers. Like I was saying, I have a whole podcast where we just talk about white papers, but it is, uh, I think it's nice to have white papers, and I've read through these. These are these are a lot more uh, red book white paper than uh, even number of printable glossy sheet white paper, which is great. So they're actually mm-hmm. uh, they're they're good ones. But how many how many do you have planned out? What's in the pipe? You know, we're very XP ish around here, so I don't want you to make any promises of dates other than the future. <laughs> you see what evolves. But like, uh, what what else do you have in the works before we get to the ones you have? Yeah, there's. Uh, I think there's probably about five or six more in the offing that will mm. get out there. So we're not uh, not quite at the at the halfway point here. Mm. So what are what are the four you have? Give us an overview, and then we'll uh, go through them. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we've got. Um, I think really this to maybe kind of start off with. It's a little bit like the government agency interaction that you were describing there, there, Cote, where we've got this constellation of content that we do. You know, at at Pivotal and. Um, there's a lot of curation, a lot of generation that we do with that content, and there's you know, always learning that goes on, and we identify a handful of gaps that uh, are really there in terms of how we you know, work with customers and, and you know, uh, position you know, Pivotal Cloud Foundry. So there were a handful of topics that were identified, and so we started with you know, four of them to start off with, and uh, so we've got one on PCI compliance. So for all the folks out there that um, handle uh, payment processing, uh, credit card data, uh, and they want to you know, improve how they do software. The PCI one will be interesting for them. Um, we've also got one on uh, Bosch, really kind of a, a 101 on that uh, open source distributed tool chain. And then we've got one on how to run microservices on Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we've written in the past about microservices architectures in general. So this gets a little bit more specific about PCF as a target platform for those and then lastly, we've got uh, kind of an introduction to continuous integration, uh, continuous uh, delivery um, metrics, what to look for, how to get started, practical advice around that. So um, that one in particular is uh, pretty product neutral. It's really more about the category of process and tooling mm. that, uh, that exists out there. Yeah, that one, as I was looking through it, it's fun. You had some uh, metrics to track. I, th- I think metrics in like all newfangled cloud native stuff is always interesting because they're always... Uh... Everyone, you know, always about uh, whatever you want to call cycle, lead, whatever, however technical you want to get time, T- time to actually do something. Think about it and do it uh, and deliver it is interesting. But you had some other some novel new ones in there that, that were pretty good. Like, I think if I'm remembering right, the one that I thought was good was the uh, not only time to do a build, but maybe time to like run all the tests and validate time to validate the build, as I recall, mm. which is. That's a fun sort of internal metric to track because I would assume you'd like to get that down as much as possible to be shorter. Yeah, yeah, and and really, it's a a practical exercise. You know, 
I think that uh, a lot of us that you spend time on on Twitter, we all kind of see the you know Clouderati talking about you know things with CI/CD and moving quickly and all this stuff. But you got to help you know a lot of enterprises still connect the dots with how they go from kind of work backwards from being awesome at software to where they're at today. And so a lot of customers would would tell us, okay, how do I measure this? What do I do? How do I know if I'm getting better? So there's kind of a practical you know, strain of, of detail throughout all these. And I think that's a good example that you hit on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, specifically, you know, you, uh, Cote mentioned, these aren't like two page glossies, but they're also not, you know, 120 page book page manifestos. Like they're in that, I guess that sweet spot. Uh, so I mean, who wrote these conceptually, like who was the audience and what was the point of, of cranking these out? Yeah, the, it was really, you know, I think we have a unique sales process here you know, at Pivotal, and we've got the audacious goal of transforming how the world you know, builds software. And you don't do that by having the customer swipe a credit card and you know, accept a click-through agreement. You know, so a lot of times the sales process, or almost every time with the sales process, is you know, our team of account executives, platform architects, um, getting embedded with the customer for you know, three, six, nine months a lot of the time, really understanding what's going on in that customer's environment, understanding, you know, what their landscape looks like, what their culture is like, what the application architecture is like, what business goals they have. And so as a result of that, you know, deep collaboration, you kind of identify some key things that the customer wants to wants to know in order to get better at at doing software. So this was uh, an effort by a lot of the platform architects, who you know, most of whom have you know, a couple of decades experience in you know IT and business and helping the customers you know achieve their their business goals. They wanted to sit down and address you know, some of these um, really burning technical topics that didn't quite fit in. Uh, neatly with the existing content that we have at at Pivotal, so it came from from that group, um, and it was really meant to address you know the the technical you know, buying cycle of of enterprises. So you've got your your application developers, you've got you know operators, um, you've got enterprise architects, which uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier, and then you've got you know the security and compliance teams as well. And you know, very little happens in enterprise IT uh, as a system of record without security and compliance teams getting on board. So um, a whole range of buyers uh, should hopefully find some useful information in the series. Yeah, I know one thing I noticed when, uh, I mean, I guess documentation always seems to trail, obviously, product maturity. I mean, on one hand, when we were asked about this, it was like, gosh, how do we not already have some of these papers? And you just realize that you know, over time, you, you do need to build up this stable of actual best practices. I remember one of our senior Cloud Foundry directors mentioned last week that you know we were selling the version 1.0 of PCF and they were asking for best practice documentation. It's like we haven't even shipped this thing yet. I don't know what the good any practices are of this. So now we're you know years into PCF and have these things in place. Did you, did you feel like as we were putting this together, this is actually did have some of that kind of battle earned experience that that we're trying to pass on here? I I think so. And you know, two years in you know cloud native platforms is a is a long time. And you know, that was one of the things that you know, struck me. As we were you know, going through the papers, is the the depth and the rigor behind you know the the platform in a lot of ways. If you look at you know going down to the the very guts of the cloud provider interface, you know with with Bosch through the different you know four layers of HA the platform provides to uh, how you can run microservices for Java and for .NET, you know to how you can um, you know, start to think about you know meeting these you know 
really uh, onerous you know, compliance rules. There's a whole you know slew of things in there that the platform um, you has a pretty decent answer for. So that was one of the things that that definitely struck me. And again, it's not coming from um, you know somebody that is a is a purely you know communications type of role. These are platform architects who have you know, done hands on keyboard alongside our our customers to help make these things real. So again, there's a uh, kind of this you know, authentic you know actionable spirit throughout what we've tried to write. So uh, just to delve into the content a little bit, uh, I'll pick on the on, on the first one I wrote down. So on the in the PCI one, so so just just give us a gist. There's there's always two things with compliance. One is like, uh, so what do you actually need to do? <laughs> and uh, and then, and then like give a brief overview of like how how like the pivotal stack of stuff helps out with that. Yeah, with with PCI and compliance, like you say, it's it always is is very tricky, and it's a mix of your know, product, it's a mix of people, it's a mix of tools, it's a mix of of process, and so you know in that particular you know paper, um, you know John Field, uh, the author who lives and breathes this stuff, you know goes through I think the the twelve major requirement areas of uh, of PCI. And how the platform is affected by it, or in some cases not affected. So um, it goes down into you know how you want to configure you know firewall rules to ensure certain levels of isolation and, and segmentation, um, to getting into things about how you think about the the platform can do auditing and logging, and do you know access who's you know drilled into what, who's access what subsystems, to how this how the platform can actually do things like you know patching. Um, there's, I think, a, a kind of a unique quirk in PCI where it says, you know, have a have a documented process and then follow that process. That's kind of what the instruction <laughs> right. is. Um, and so in the paper, it talks about where that comes into play for Cloud Foundry, how it can support that particular process with kind of a bare minimum of, of manual intervention. And you want to be you know, automated whenever you're talking about establishing a process and then following it. And I think there's uh, a lot of that you know, technical depth in that paper too. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if this is an early draft, but I remember reading over maybe a year, year and a half ago. And I think it was by him, like a, like a, a PCI sort of white paper that we had floating around. And, and it was great because, because, uh, you know, most of my, my sort of like, uh, computer nerd career life, uh, to word salad it out, uh, like, you know, everyone's always like, ooh, compliance and audit. And it seems spooky. And I remember reading to that paper and realizing that, oh, it's just a bunch of tedious work. <laughs> like, like it's not that there's like some magic thing that you need to do or some like some impossible thing. It's just like, yeah, it's you just got to go through all this stuff and make sure, you know, like you're saying, like you should probably patch things when there's a security problem. Right. And and like and then there are, you know, there's other there's other funny little thing. I mean, from our perspective, being infrastructure, funny things like all your desktop computers should run antivirus software. But uh it it's good and and it makes me assume that with a lot of other compliance stuff it uh it's equally demystified in the sense of it's not like it's not like from a an agile perspective there's some compliance out there that's basically like and now wait 6 months <laughs> right like right. like there's there's no weird onerous stuff in there it's just a bunch of like things to make sure you're doing which which I would imagine uh, when you get into kind of like a cloud platform stuff and also to, when you add a build pipeline to it, you can automate a tremendous amount of this stuff. And more importantly, well, not more importantly, but for some people, you can also automate proving that you're doing it 
by uh, well, as long as you trust the system, but you can spit out well, a lot of what the, you're doing. That's probably the key, right? Otherwise, it often becomes ceremony or theater. Like, oh, we we checked this box, we we did this versus like here's an audit trail that proved what we deployed into production last Tuesday at two p.m. You know, <laughs> right. here's the credentials we rotated last Thursday, like that. You know, Jared, I think your point from the paper, I think is key is you have to show what practice, not just, it's not just technical checklists. It's how does this actually hit the spirit of what these things are with PCI or HIPAA or any of these compliance things. It's how is this actually solving the spirit of it, probably in a better way than you were doing it before manually. Yeah. And I think that's probably the the thing with, with compliance is that it's the conversation is really not one of roadblocks and obstacles the way that maybe it, it has been historically. But when there's you know, a lot of folks in the boardroom of the company excited about getting better at software, going faster, you know, building new revenue streams with you know, differentiated applications, it becomes a question of you know, um, how can we be compliant and do this? It's not so much that compliant is a big hurdle. It's people have an attitude of, I want to you know, help the company get better at software. We can't you know, negotiate on compliance. So how does that play into it? So there's a nice you know, different buying attitude that I think that we've seen the last couple of years here too. And so, uh, you know, since we're speaking of it, so so it, you've got the the CICD paper, the build pipeline paper, if you will, and and you know, I, I've I've been watching this evolve, uh, I guess for about a year or so. Like I think I think while Pivotal's been had some common practices about build pipeline stuff, we've been a lot more vocal about like this is our this is our philosophy of build pipeline. So can you? Can you give us a little overview of like what's in that paper as far as saying like this is like the uh, this is what the the overall pivotal community with its customers and ourselves like what we think a good build pipeline is and things that we use and you know our idea of it? Yeah, I think it's there's uh when we you think about you know CI CD, you know, the, the important thing is to you know understand what the characteristics are of your development you know, organization is your development organization really focused on you know velocity is it a, a kpi to think about how many your know, releases that you do in a given you know period of time um and are you deploying things to you know multiple infrastructure targets that's another thing i think we've seen uh be really of, of interest in this you know, sort of your multi-cloud mm, yeah uh, that, that's that's a good uh, point movement yeah. that's come on yeah. yeah. So there, there, there are a couple of things. If you think about you know modern modern development, you know microservices, velocity, you know constant releases, um, many infrastructure targets. These are all things that um, have come into to focus. I think the last couple of years, and that you know, mimics what we you know, want to do in the open source project that you know, Pivotal sponsors with Concourse. But a lot of these philosophies you know, really transcend any particular tool and help you take advantage of it. So I think it's it's really about understanding your development organization and what's going to be important to you over the next you know, decade when you think about your build pipeline. So I, I, I think, uh, well, I think, you know, CICD stuff, specifically CI, continuous integration, is one of the uh, the older schools of thought in application developments. But I always feel like every time you stare at it for a while, you like learn something new and interesting. And so I'm curious, maybe this would be a very short answer if the answer is no. But like when you were going over this, did you discover any new uh, interesting things about build pipelines they hadn't come across or thought of before? Uh I think yeah. The one thing that that came across was kind of the the visual nature of of build pipelines. Um, places that I've worked in the in the past would wire up the build system to uh, a lamp, 
inside the team room. <laughs> right, right. And, I mean, that was quite the fad for a while. <laughs> it was, yeah. And so um, that that's a nice visual cue because when something goes wrong, everybody knows about it. And things get fixed, you know, pretty quickly when there's, you know, red lights in the in the room, and with uh, with what we see people doing with with concourse, some of them are pivotal customers, some of them just use concourse. They've got these, you know, huge screens of their build pipelines up there, and concourse has a really nice visual treatment there. Yeah. And it's not just the the binary, you know, green for good, red for bad kind of thing with the lamp, but it gives you a lot of really rich detail about what's happening and that visual reminder of you know what's actually happening with your code and when you're priority as a business is a ship code you know, frequently that's a pretty good thing to have visible for everybody yeah no, that's 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 interesting it's it's kind of like a little bit of a shade of what we we're talking about with pci stuff where it's uh it's it's making the uh the unintelligible a little more comprehensible right like it's better than uh you know this really poorly formatted email with probably like a java stack dump in it and you've got to figure out what that means. Like that seemed to be the primary interface for a while. And it is, uh, yeah, that's interesting. And it also like highlights what I'm sure was one of the more delightful and challenging marketing challenge, uh, challenges of the mid 2000s, which was, I have this glowing orb that you can hook up to a USB port. Why would anyone buy this? <laughs> I'm sure they sold a lot of those little glowing orbs and cats based on pipelines. Naturally. So, uh, also, so then the other one, I mean, you mentioned several times is microservices. And I feel like, I feel like this is, this is another one that's kind of like, uh, to some extent writing down and codifying what we think of as our, as, as the pivotal approach and what our customers are doing, the, the kind of stack. So, so similarly, like what's, if you were to give us kind of an overview of the, the stackish approach or, or the, the, the approach that we talk about in that paper, what, what goes on in there? Yeah, there's a, a lot of the content about how to do microservices kind of in, in general is is out there. And so as I mentioned briefly earlier, this is really prescriptive to how to do it on on PCF and some of the things that you you know get by using you know Spring Boot, for example, you know, kind of the compatibility you have with Pivotal Cloud Foundry there too. Um, I, and then there's also a few things that we talk about making the leap from the monolithic architecture where you know a lot of you know monitoring and, and logging, you know, those were all pretty straightforward because it was just one thing that you had to you know think about to now this interdependency so some parts of the paper you know underscore i think some of the challenges with microservices where you have to think differently for logging you have to think differently for for metrics you have to think differently you know, about you know a lot of things operationally um but then it also contrasts that with how i think the industry in general has you know rallied around uh, microservices and has answers to some of these you know problems like distributed tracing um, with things like you know zipkin which we embody in, in PCF metrics and then you know things that we've done uh, purposefully with cloud foundry like the logregator uh, you know tool that you know aggregates up all the logs from the platform, from the code, all these different components and makes it, you know, a single unified stream so that, you know, it's not such a jarring experience operationally. You can still plug into this one one thing and understand what's happening. So it's a pretty decent look at day one, day two microservices with um, a practical approach to how things are, are different from the world of, of monoliths. Um, there's also a lot of investment that we've done uh, along with the community for .NET. So it was a purpose thing, purposeful thing for us to work in you know windows and net into a lot of these papers as well since um you know microservices isn't just for java anymore sure you got you got to represent for the glacier swimming holes 
make sure, make sure that right. the, uh, the .NET <laughs> stuff gets in there as always. So, um, uh, uh, I just, I just joked myself into forgetting what I was going to ask, which, which is, which is nice. But, um, I, I think, you know, one, one of the things I always struggle with is to like rattle off examples of, of, well, it'd be easy to rattle off examples of bad microservices, but of good microservices. And, and, and did y'all, you know, along with the platform architects you're working on, did you come up with a, did you encounter and come up with a handful of good examples of what a microservice would be other than, the canonical books you might like to buy, which which I think is, is always uh, it's always good. There's uh, some that we talk about uh, for um, the insurance industry, financial services, where you've got uh, imagine say uh, open enrollment period um, when there's a new company uh, that's signed up for an insurance service where this enrollment service um, may be something new that you wanna that you wanna have as a you know, providing software as an insurance company, you're going to have a spike in enrollment once new customers, you know, come on board your insurance benefit management, you know, type of platform. So being able to scale that independent of your other services uh, is one example that we talk about. And then in that same vein, um, once you actually have somebody, uh, somebody that's a customer, you know, that, that's filing a claim, you may want to scale that differently. Or when it's come time to renew your benefits, that would happen at a different cycle. So just being able to you know, scale the system um, independently, these different services to correspond to the business cycle uh, is, one, is one thing that we mentioned. There's also a handful of, of reference architecture that we talk about kind of you know, more holistically, this, um, you know, CQRS type of structure, and then some other examples of how you do you know, data enrichment, uh, event-driven architectures, things of that sort, just to you know, go a little bit you know, meta big picture on what a, a holistic system would look like. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. So it seems, seems like you have a nice mix of things for architects, for some operator. I mean, I would assume the Bosch paper is probably the most operator-centric. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, definitely the case. Um, and then we try and you know, hit those other constituencies in the, in the buying center. Uh, with the others too yeah but at the same time hopefully you know if you're a manager if you're a i don't know if you're an architect if you're a manager it's it's good to have some cross-pollination even if you're a dev it's probably good to read the bosch paper you know if you're a operations person understanding the microservices imperative that devs are thinking through so hopefully these things are you know i know when i look through them very digestible and folks should be trying to cross-pollinate with their other teams as you're, you're trying to do either fake devops or real devops or whatever you're trying to have some empathy so hopefully papers like this actually break down that barrier just a bit. Yeah, it's it's, ca- it's sort of like you're talking about. We were talking about with the hype cycles is uh, the, you you could I guess you could print them out and physically do it, but you could you could metaphorically <laughs> stack these papers together and and they uh, they kind of inform the other one. Like you know the last one is you know an overview of Bosch and 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 how it's awesome and all that. And it is like just delving. I mean, you even have. Uh, I don't know if there's code, but there's a YAML Cody example. But you give a with some diagrams a pretty good overview of like the way this works and therefore how it works and therefore why it enables all this awesomeness up the stack of of automating things and helping you scale and things like that. And I think uh I think I think it's it's a good it's a good way of explaining how if you sort of um I was talking about this with someone earlier today, if you sort of homogenize the uh, the lower levels of infrastructure, so you don't worry about them so much. And and as always, you trust it, and it working is key. That's a good requirement. Uh, but if you do something like you know uh, automate your infrastructure and do all your health checks and basically keep your infrastructure healthy with something like Bosch and be able to run on multiple clouds, 
it it gives you a lot of latitude to uh, do all the stuff up the stack, all the way up to you know the PCI level, where now you can actually trust the automation that's going on, the automatic enforcement, and how that gets supported by deploying with build pipelines and running microservice, and default tolerant type of stuff. I don't know if the microservices people would say fault tolerance, the resilience of microservices. <laughs> Um, but it all kind of is, is possible by the, uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes, by the scary clamshell, which I think, I think y'all, uh, y'all have done a good job unscarifying. I don't know what the opposite of scary mm-hmm. is, but, uh, that's, that's a good <laughs> overview. Yeah. Hopefully the, the Bosch, uh, as a project is more approachable. Is that the opposite of, of scary maybe? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and like like Richard was saying, you know, the cross pollination of of content. You know, a lot of times we talk about the contracts you have between components, and we like to say you don't need to care about that. But maybe you can take ten or fifteen minutes to read a paper to find out, you know, what your operations team might actually be doing. You know, to give you you know this resiliency and you know the other things that are essential to you as a developer. Because in in reality, all these you're trying to break down these silos and, and share information. So um hopefully a lot of folks find the good information in, in all of these, regardless of what their what their role might be. Yeah. You know, be, because I'm such a uh, moderately fast scurrying flanard across all this cloud native stuff, I never actually go investigate this. But I always think <laughs> I always think it's it's interesting to look at the uh, the cloud provider interface, the CPI uh that Bosch has and and to kind of contemplate like are, is this the minimal set of functionality you need to run any piece of software, <laughs> right? And and every time I look at it, it seems like it, right? I mean, obviously, you need to install the software, that's, so that's good. And then you need to configure it, and then you need to see if it's up and running. And if it's not up and running, you should get it up and running. And there, there's, I think, like, you probably remember better than I do, there's like 18 or 20 different methods that you implement. But it almost feels like that's the bare minimum you need to actually run software on computers, which is which is uh, it's a it's a curious thing to look at every now and then, in a good way. Well, do you, do you have any other? Uh, did you get any other like fun insights as you were working on these papers that you wanted to throw out there before we wrap up? I just hopefully that a lot of folks you know find it um, pretty easy to read. There's been some good you know, feedback about that, and so for. A lot of these things, uh, the the secret sauce for me has been uh, the Hemingway application that uh, allows you to copy and paste some you know text you've written and gives you a readability score. So that's been a bit of a cheat sheet to you know help make sentences shorter, digestible, use more forceful kind of language. So uh, for aspiring writers out there, that could be a, a good tool to check out. So the papers have run, been run through this uh, Hemingway filter. So hopefully it. Mm. Uh, it, it makes it more readable, regardless of people's personal feelings about Hemingway. I mentioned that, and then people go on a tirade about how they feel about him as an author, which was not really the point I was trying to make by oh, mentioning yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think Richard mentioned this earlier, but yeah, the papers are extremely readable. So uh, good, good job on on y'all doing that. Yeah, you know, I think I think when it first came out, I tried to use the Hemingway application, and I think I brought down the internet. So I should, I should probably not put things I write through that. That that would not be good. But uh, yeah. But you know, since since you evoke, I think Hemingway was a great author. He's like he's like one of my two favorite authors. So he did a good job. But, but you, you could do worse than reading him. I mean, if you want to be fancy pants, you could go read a bunch of Faulkner and kind of get the same effect. But uh, Hemingway's good stuff. Well, with that, this has been another pivotal conversations episode with a little uh, literature nook uh, visit for you. <laughs> Uh, as always, if you want to get the most recent episodes or see all the old ones, and we have some little playlists there of kind of sub runs that we have with various analysts or with 
uh, customer interviews that we've done, you can go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations. I saw that someone decided to infuse some cash into SoundCloud, so they'll be around for at least another year. We'll see how that works <laughs> out. Uh, it's a fine place to host podcasts. Uh, if you want to uh, reach out to us, uh, I am Cote, C-O-T-E, in Twitter. How about yourself, Jared? I am Jared Ruckel at Twitter, J-A-R-E-D-R-U-C-K-L-E. And yourself, Richard? You can find me at R. Soroder, so all, uh, all hot takes welcome. And about every Thursday, if I'm doing my job uh, moderately correctly, we'll post the full show notes uh, at pivotal.io slash podcast, in addition to it being on SoundCloud. And we'll have links to those papers and uh, to the Hemingway application if you, if you don't want to use Google. We'll put, we'll put that there and the, the news items we talked about. And it's always good if you just, uh, if you're listening to this on the web or you've downloaded it to, um, I don't know, some sort of moto razor that you still have manually you're syncing things, you should just subscribe to the RSS feed, which you can find in whatever you listen to, iTunes, Overcast, probably Stitcher, and uh, have, have a listen there. And uh, it's also great if you give us a star or a, uh, a review in iTunes. That's, that's fun. And I understand it helps things out. Also, we have several other podcasts. We have one called That Moment that you can search for. I think the third episode of that is out. And that's, that's a fun podcast going over, as the name would imply, sort of the thinking that people went through when they decided to uh, finally start doing things in a better way or they realized they needed to. We also have uh, Pivotal Insights. I just listened to a really good one uh, talking with um, one of the people who heads up our modernization, our application modernization practice. And um, it was really good because it was, went over kind of like the methodological way that they figure out uh, what to modernize and how to approach it. So we got all sorts of stuff going on there. But with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Do we lose Mr. Cote? I'm oh, here. I, I was I was on mute. Now I have to go edit this. This is terrible. <laughs> yes, you do. Damn it. Let's see. <laughs> Around 6.30. The rolling cooler helps for podcast editing as well. Yes. You got to get a rolling cooler. And, you know, you want to investigate having big wheels on it. You don't want to get those little wheels. You got to get some I've big wheels. Costco. I've got them at Costco here, so they're ubiquitous. Mm, we do need to get a new cooler, so I'm going to check. I don't want to go get a Yeti cooler because that's a lot of money. And then also, like, someone's going to steal it. And then it's. I feel like it would be the equivalent of, like, leaving a box full of iPhone 7 Pluses just at your campsite while you went out for the day. And that's not good. Had to put that as a little jokey thing at the end there. Don't want to waste content. Anyhow, uh, so, yeah, what, what was I saying? Well, anyways.